I'll start with a story for you, and then I will, well, I'll start with explaining where we're going, give you a story, and then bring it into the text. Is it me, or has anyone else noticed that the American church, of which we are part, seems a little bit off as far as when you read scripture, what it's supposed to be like? You, you have a, um, it's more of a social club than a rescue mission. It's, it's more about meeting felt needs than real needs. It's all about being, um, being focused on what can you do for me as opposed to what can I do for you. It's a, comprised of a group, myself as a primary, selfish and prideful people who struggle to share our faith. We at times don't have the joy that we know God wants for us, and God seems like a distant being who we know intellectually, but relationally that's just a struggle. As we go into Galatians 5 and then 6, we're going to see what the problem is. And the good news is we can see how to correct it. If I could guarantee you that you could have a joy-filled, powerful, life-transforming, desire-exceeding, and light-shining existence in this world, wouldn't you want it? I hope so. Two doors. What God is going to show us through Paul in Galatians starting in 5 is, is quite actually how quite simple that is and how we've gone off track. I think what's happened is there's been a theft. And I was thinking about this week when I was 17 years old. I woke up one day to go to school. And I grabbed my backpack by the front door, and I walked down the steps, and I turned right to go around the driveway to where my Cadillac Eldorado was parked. I mean, I've been cool for a long time. (laughs) And I had parked it there the night before, and nobody left the house, but I came around the corner, and there was no Cadillac Eldorado in the driveway. It was one of the most bizarre feelings I've ever experienced because it should have been there, and it wasn't there. And I stood there for a minute, and I walked back in the house. I thought maybe my dad took it, and maybe his car wasn't working. So I walked in, but my dad was still home. And I said, where's my car? And my mom said, what are you talking about? So we all, all three of us go walking outside, and the three of us are standing there just staring. It was, it was surreal. What do you do? So we call the police, and... I had to take the bus to school. That was the worst part. (laughs) And we filed a police report, and the car was stolen. Well, something else has been stolen, too, from us. But you have to notice it before you can get it back. I never got that car back. But you can get back what we've lost. And it's the joy that we're supposed to have, the, the abundant life, which begins in understanding freedom in Christ. So let's go to Galatians 5. We'll look at the first 15 verses today, God willing. And this section starts with, For freedom Christ has set us free. This is hard to do without a, without a music stand. And I've broken this into two things, two, two, two sections. Don't lose your gospel freedom and don't abuse your gospel freedom. This is not my clever device. This is how the text is actually set up. For freedom Christ has set us free. Everyone's doing it. (laughs) For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You're severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. 
For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything, but only faith working through love. Let's stop there for a minute. This freedom that, that Paul's talking about, for freedom Christ has set you free. What, what is this freedom? The trick to reading the Bible poorly is just read it and don't ask questions, right? For freedom Christ has set you free. <clears throat> you can take this, this term from a positive or from a negative ap- approach. From the negative approach, it's we're free from captivity to the law. We're free from from thinking that we can be right with God by our doing and the insecurity and dismay and and confusion and depression and discontent that come from that. Now, most people are able to to ignore or or anesthetize um, that discomfort as they go through life and try to be right with God legalistically. But if you stop and slow down and think too much, that's why the entertainment culture is so huge in our context. If you don't stop and think, you're okay. But when you stop and think, or when reality smacks you in the face, it really will mess you up if you're trying to work your way into a right relationship with God. Well, by grace through faith, we're freed from that. The, the inverse, the positive, is freedom is a joyful life found in an abiding relationship in Christ. So for freedom, Christ has set us free. Paul says, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. A couple things. The fact that he says stand firm means that you can lose this freedom. So he, he's warning the Galatians and us as well. Know the freedom that you have. Enjoy the freedom that you have. But pay attention to the freedom that you have so that you don't lose it. Stand firm. And do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. We'll take, it, take these two things. The, the, the word again and then the word yoke. Notice something really interesting. The Galatians were being, uh, were being influenced by the Judaizers, the circumcision party. The Judaizers called the people to have to obey the moral law to be true Christians. Right? That, that's the error Paul's addressing. They're, they're legalists. They, they're taking the moral law and saying you have to keep it to be right with God in addition to the work of Christ. The Galatians were never captive to the moral law. They, they were pagans. They weren't Jews. But he's telling them, don't don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. Do you notice something interesting there? He's equating moral legalism, you know, like Pharisees, Sadducees, and pagan idolatry. Do you see that? So you may meet two different people, one who says, oh, I do everything God says. You know, I don't smoke, eat, drink, cuss, or hang around people that do. I wear, you know, clothes to my, to my ankles and button at my neck all the time, and they're baggy, and and I don't watch anything on TV, and I am just a morally upright person. Then you can meet someone on the opposite side who, ah, I worship false idols, I, I smoke every drug you can find, I'm never really sober, I steal from people, I, I murdered a couple people last week, and woohoo, I love it. Well, in the eyes of God, they're equally separated from God. You see that? Paul's equating both of those as, as the yoke. They're the yoke of legalism. It's the yoke of thinking that, I'll be right with God based on my terms, or I'll be right with God based on the law that he gave us. He's saying, don't submit to to that yoke again. That's how we know he equates the two, because when he says again, the Galatians had to be a part of it. But there's a different yoke that we're supposed to wear. You you ever read that passage where Jesus and Matthew talks about his yoke? 
What, what does he say about his yoke? Anybody remember? It's Matthew um, 11, 28 through 30. You ever feel like that might not be the case? Yeah, you ever, you ever like, well, I, I know intellectually that this one's supposed to be light and easy, but it, it feels heavy and burdensome and wears me out, and everybody else with it, this burdensome yoke seems to be having a whole lot more fun. What's, what's wrong here? Or is, is that just me? It says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The, the word easy is an interesting word. It, it means, how do you describe it? Filled with joy, delightful. Th those would be synonyms that you could pull out of the, the Greek word that we're dealing with there. What happens is we fall under a legalistic trapping in different places in our lives, and that's where the burden comes from. We forget who we are. We forget the freedom that we have in Christ. And that's why his yoke seems heavy is because it's not actually his yoke we're struggling under. You see that? It, it's it's an immensely important concept, but it's so easy to, to not see. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. The Judaizers were saying, in part, if you want to be a Christian, you have to be circumcised. Do you imagine how churches would become unpopulated with, with the male standard if you had to be circumcised to be a part of the church? Whoop, we gone. Well, that's what, they, that's what they were teaching. You had to become basically a Jew to be a Christian. And Paul is warning the Galatians, don't fall into this trap. It seems that they hadn't done this yet. That's not something you walk into lightly. Right? It's a good requirement for church membership. But it's um, something they were struggling with almost falling into. But he's saying, look, if you're going to go with circumcision, you've got to keep the whole law. Otherwise, it's of no value to you. But when you look here in verse 4, this can be a confusing text all of a sudden. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. You catch that? Doesn't it sound like what he's saying is if you, if you go that route, you're going to lose your faith. You're, you're no longer going to be Christians. You're no longer in a right relationship with God. But I, I thought that you couldn't have your faith and lose it. Isn't there some sort of comfort that comes in knowing that you're eternally secure in God's hands, that it's not by your work, it's by his work? So, so what's he talking about here? You're going to be severed? You're going you're gonna to lose? What are they going to lose? How do you guys reconcile that? Is he saying they're going to lose their faith? Thank you for saying that, too, because I was confused at a couple of things you said that, because I, I didn't think you could lose it either. The good news is, you can. So we've got to figure out what he's talking about here. As you read through the whole letter, you'll notice a couple of things. He uses the word brethren or brothers about nine times. He's referring to the Galatians as brothers. He'll use the pronoun we, identifying oneness in, in Christ. <laughs> this is the greatest room ever. <laughs> in verse 10, if you look closely, he says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. Why? Because they're Christians. This is something that is so important to understand, especially for anyone who calls themselves a Christian, because you'll meet lots of people, well, you know, I, I grew up in the church, and I, ha I, I was a Christian, but then I fell away for a while, but then I came back, and, hmm. 
It's like saying, well, I was born in the 70s, and then I, was, I died in the 80s, but then I was, I was alive again in the 90s. I think I died for a little bit, but then I was alive again. You would look at someone like they were crazy. Like, no, you're either alive or you're dead. You don't keep going back and forth. Well, you're either a Christian, regenerate, right, saved, or you're not. A lot of people think they're Christians, but they're not. And the way you can tell they're not is by if they endure. If they persevere. John talks about that in, in 1 John 2.19. Let's take a look at it. I won't, I won't paraphrase God's word. I just have to find it. 1 John 2.19. John's talking about people in this situation. People that would have professed to be Christians. And then it didn't work out that way. It says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were that they all are not of us. What is he saying? If they were really Christians, they would have kept it up. They would have persevered. Because they didn't continue, they never really were. Point is, once you got it, you can't lose it. How do you know you got it? Because you endure. Does that mean you can never know until it's all over? No, not at all. I think we talked about that a couple months ago. So if you go through the scroll of sermons, you can find that. I, oh, I remember the sermon. Renee was sweating that one out. <laughs> if, if, you, if you love God, truly love God just a little bit, yeah, even if you're, if you're slightly fond towards him, you know, you know you have salvation. You will endure. You will persevere. It's when you, when you, you think you got it and you find out the soil was off, God will expose that relatively quickly. So what's Paul talking about? He says, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. Well, that's exactly what he's talking about. You're severed from Christ. Your, your, your salvation can't be lost, but your intimacy of fellowship with Christ can. Ah, now we're into the, what we started with. You could be a real live Christian person who is absolutely miserable, joyless, discontent, depressed, and who God seems extremely distant to. Because you fail to live in light of the freedom that you have. You fail to fully abide in Christ. Once saved, always saved. That's a clear biblical teaching, over and over and over again. The intimacy of fellowship that we have, now that's the problem. I have lots of people have asked me over the years, is there more to being a Christian than just understanding that Jesus came and lived the perfect life that you couldn't died and took the punishment you deserved in your place and put his righteousness upon you? Like, what do you do after you got all that? Well, that, that's, that's what happens is we get stuck there and then we don't continue to grow. So these people couldn't lose their faith and that's why Paul knew that they would go on. But he says, he goes on here and he says, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything, but only faith working through love. Think of a crib. This is really a good illustration for this text. Little kids sleep in cribs. You know, when they're one, two years old, you pick them up, you put them in, they're, they, they're safe. They can't really do much damage to themselves in a crib. They can chew on the crib, or they might fall out when they get a little past two, but... That great, scary world outside of the crib, they're protected from it. If you leave a one-year-old, at least in my house, out of the crib, they start sticking things into sockets. They start chewing on wires. They start, like, trying to jump downstairs. They attack animals. They, they'll swim in the toilet. It's dangerous. So I, I put them in the crib. And they look cute. You know, a sleeping kid in the crib, sucking their thumb. Oh. 
But then when they're like 17 years old, 18 years old, if you walk in, and you're, if, if Danielle's sleeping in her crib, I imagine Kim's not like, oh, Dan, look how precious she is. Like, what the hell's wrong with this kid? And then if you, if you catch Dan sleeping in the crib, you're like, oh, and he's sucking his thumb. It's like, what is, this is concerning. Well, what Paul's saying to the Galatians is, get out of the crib. You, you guys were removed from the crib, and you keep trying to climb back in the crib and suck your thumb. Now, as an adult, would you want to live in a crib where you couldn't enjoy the world around you in the way you were, you were made and equipped to enjoy it? Crib's safe, right? It's comfortable in the crib. But could you imagine? Your friends go, no, I'm in my crib. I can't get out right now. You, know, you get invited to go on a vacation somewhere. Well, heck, as an adult, you decide to go on the vacation somewhere. You pay for the vacation. But no, I'm going to get back in the crib. I like the crib. I feel safe in the crib. Well, Paul's saying to the Galatians, look, guys, we've talked about this. The law is a crib for the children, the little children, pre-Christ. You know, the law has a, a couple purposes. One is to convict of sin. It's always had that purpose. When you, you look at the moral law of God, you can, if, you're, if you're honest, you will have to acknowledge, I can't keep this. I can't. And that's what you're supposed to get out of it. Because you, you've sinned, you fall short of the glory of God, you're separated from him. There's the primary purpose of the law. Now, for the child of God, the law serves another purpose as a guardian. We saw that a few weeks ago, right? It says, you guys aren't really equipped to handle this yet. Like you say to a child, you're, you know, Charlie's when he was two. You go in the crib, you're my son. You can't change the fact you're my son, I love you, but you're sleeping in a crib, so you don't hurt yourself. God gave us th these guardrails, this guardian, too, of the law, these hedges, saying, stay within these hedges, it will go better for you. Go outside of the hedges, you will get hurt. Well, then Christ came. And through faith in Christ, by grace, we, we are adult sons. Remember we talked about that by adoption? And we're indwelt all of a sudden by the Holy Spirit. Big difference between pre-Christ believers, they were not indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and post-Christ believers were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So the law is not something we can't keep, because we're not doing it on our own, but we begin to have a desire to keep it, and we have protection from within empowering us so that we can go out. We can keep the law out of gratitude through the power that resides in us, so we can be out of the crib and enjoy the freedom that we have. What happens too often is you and I try to get back into the crib of the law. We try to hang on to legalism. We try to disobey God and make up our own way. We try to trust in ourselves and not trust in God. You know, can I pick on you because you said something that I would say uh, at Q Place. You know, remember you were talking about the, the power that your boss has on you. Oh, yeah. How often uh, – Bob was sharing in, in – I should have asked you beforehand. But Bob was sharing how his boss – has power over his life, you know, the, the purse strings, right? His boss writes a check. So if Bob's acting in a way outside of what would be pleasing to his boss, Bob's going to be very hungry. He's going to eat a lot on Sundays, and you know, he's, he's going to be very cold during the week. So we look at situations like that. There are people in our lives, and we say, this, this person has a lot of power over me. I have to be very careful with them, right? Well, the reality is, and we were talking about Jesus before Pilate, when Pilate says, you know that I could have you killed. Jesus didn't say, well, yeah, you're a very powerful man, you know, please be nice to me. He said, no, you, you have no power unless my father gives it to you. Reality is, Bob's boss has no power over him unless God allows him to do it. From our perspective, bosses have a lot of power over us, don't they? And it's not just bosses, it's circumstances and situations in life. And we tend to look at those as a failing to look at God. And what we're doing is we're trying to grab control. We're trying to say, if I do this, or if I don't do that, it will be better for me, as opposed to trusting 
that God knows what he's doing. Now, that doesn't mean you go up to your boss saying, nanny, nanny, poo, poo, you can't do anything to me because he can fire you. You want to be in the will of God. You want to respect authority. You want to love people. But it's, it's one of the ways that we so easily distort and, and end up climbing back into the crib. So what do we do about it? We stand firm, that term back at the beginning. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm. That's another one of those things. Just stand firm, okay? What does that mean? It doesn't mean like just literally, oh, I have joy in my faith. <laughs> Standing firm. It's, you'll find Paul use it in uh, 1 Corinthians 6.13, Philippians 1.27, and 4.1. It means this. It means keep alert, be strong, resist attack, stick together. Said another way more simply, focus on the gospel, live like adult sons, and trust God. So don't let the circumstances of light of life mess you up focus on god don't don't walk in disobedience to god trust god don't be ignorant of what god says listen to god you do those things you have the ability to stand firm if you don't do those things you will inevitably start climbing into the crib best case scenario you'll inevitably start climbing into the crib of legalism and failing to have the joy you see, I found when I, was in, when I was in seminary, God very graciously decided to empty the proverbial pantry. So, you know, you could begin to pray for your daily bread, you know, and for your bills to be paid at the end of the month. And something that was so wonderfully refreshing, he actually does what he says. It's like, wow, big surprise. But then little by little, you start to get a couple loaves of bread in the pantry, and it gets a little bit harder to trust God. Right? You know what I'm saying? You get a little insulation of whatever type. Give yourself a little bit, little bit more control of, of your life. You know, if, if I could just win the lottery, if I could be my own boss, and if I could buy my own island where no one could bother me, then I would be happy. No, you actually wouldn't, but we, we don't believe it till we get there. Well, what we have to do is be willing to, to stand firm, to trust, trust in God that no matter what, he's going to take perfect care of us. And as we do, we experience that joy. In seminary, I felt I had a, the beginnings of a much greater intimacy with God, which originated from the fact that I was beginning to trust that he was who he said he was, that he would take care of me, and I wouldn't because I couldn't, and begin to move on from there. Do you see that? Paul, that, that's the message of the gospel. You're hopeless, helpless. There's nothing you can do to save yourself or, quite frankly, to care for yourself. God graciously, patiently allows us to make mistakes. But if you want the joy of the freedom that God desires for us to have, the abundant life in Christ, stand firm. Know who he is, walk in obedience to it, and enjoy the freedom that comes from it. Now Paul flips it. Well, actually, one little word there. I don't want to lose. Then we're going to go to this other section here. It's the word hope. It says here, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the the hope of righteousness. little side comment here. Hope is a word that the English language has messed up for us. I hope it gets warm and sunny out soon. I don't know if it will get warm and sunny. In fact, I don't think it ever will again. But I, I hope it will. I hope, you know, I hope the Yankees win the World Series. I have no idea if they're going to win the World Series. I just kind of hope. Well, how often do you speak with a, a, a non-Christian person in particular? And they'll say, well, you know, faith is kind of hoping that what you believe is true, but ultimately you never really know. So that's not, that's not what the word means, hope. When you read the word hope in the Bible, it comes from a Greek word that means assurance, 
total assurance. That's why when you read in, in Hebrews 11, you know, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the certainty of things not seen. The word hope that Paul's talking about here, the, the hope of what we have in the future. is like, oh, when I die, I hope this was true. I, I hope I get to go to heaven. No, you have total assurance that it will be just as God says. When, when you die, this is the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. When you die, when you're about to die, it's usually not a wonderful transition, unfortunately, but you have total assurance that you will meet Jesus face to face and he will smile at you and welcome you into your eternal rest. Total assurance. You understand that? The non-Christian, they don't at all. They have total assurance. They won't, but they don't accept that yet. They got a hope. Oh, well, well, I hope I was good enough. I hope God loves me. I, 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 and, and, and they go into death, and they, they, they oh, I couldn't imagine a more horrendous spot to be in. Oh, I, I hope it's true. I don't know. That's why this world hangs on to life so tight, because they don't know where they're going. We know where we're going. Think of that. Total assurance. You have total assurance that every promise of God will hold true. You have total assurance that God will care for you perfectly. You have total assurance you can't lose your faith. So why wouldn't you abide more fully in Christ? Why do we keep climbing into the crib? Because we're weak. And it's in that weakness when you realize that then you become strong. Didn't God say something about that? When I'm weak, then I'm strong? Flip it, though, to the other side. Don't lose your freedom, Paul talks about. Now he says, don't abuse it. There, there's two sides of the coin. There's the losing it and there's the abusing it. He says here, starting in verse 7, you were running well. Interesting little note. Paul talks about these sports analogies a lot, right? Fighting the good fight, running the race. His, his cultural context would know about these Greek games that he was always alluding to. Do you know to participate in the Greek, great, great game, in the Greek games, you had to be a citizen of Greece? Do you know to participate in the race that God calls us to run, you have to be a citizen of heaven? God put us into the game by grace through faith, and he calls us to run in the lane mark grace. Paul says, you're running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens a whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you'll take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. There, there is a good biblical basis for us to be incredibly angry at people who teach lies. I, I, have, I have a very hard time when I turn on the TV and I see people who are calling themselves preachers, preaching just pure, I was going to use one word, but we'll say junk. You know, I, today I, w I went downstairs to, to work out and I turn on the TV and there's some prosperity gospel preacher and I'm just, it makes me angry. Because he's going to deceive a lot of people. And Paul's saying he should be emasculated. You know, he's going to be judged. He's going to be judged quite severely for this nonsense. There's merit. To, don't hate the person, but, but do address the lie. We, we do need to defend the truth. He says, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. I have a question, serious question. Verse 3, Paul's talking about how you have to keep the whole law if you're going to be right with God by the law. You can't, right? Then he's saying here, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's saying you've got to keep this law. Does a Christian have to keep the law? Or are you... 
are you required as a, as a believer to keep the law? So, are you saved by grace through faith and not by works? Or do you have to obey God? You want to know the scary answer? It's yes to both. You are saved by grace through faith and not by works. But you are, you, you do have to keep the law. You do have to obey. Jesus says, right, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. Now notice how he positions that. He doesn't say keep my commandments so that you will be right with me. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Love him, result, you will keep my commandments. You know what Paul's saying here? He's saying, don't go crazy or say, well, well I'm saying this. this. This should be written to the American church. Well, I'm saved by grace through faith, so it doesn't matter what I do. You just ask God, tell him you're sorry, and he'll forgive you. Woo! And that's awesome. Who wouldn't want that? I mean, you've put God in this little tiny box, and you tell him to do what you want him to do, and then you just tell him you're sorry if it wasn't right, and he just say, oh, it's okay. Kind of like the world's worst parent, you know? Well, Dad, I stole some more money from you, and I stole a car, and I slept around a bit, but I'm sorry. He's like, okay, son, good work. You know, God's like some toothless old, like, crinkly, like, sitting in the, the rocking chair, the lazy boy in heaven. Oh, you got me there, son of a boy. Come on in. You know? No. It's completely different from that. Paul's saying, understand, before Christ, before Galatians, you came to faith, you tried to use God. Legalists try to use God. Well, check it out, God. If I do this, 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 and that, then I expect you to do this for me. You don't usually think of it that way because that sounds rather pompous. But look, God, I'm going to do my best. And because I do my best, you're going to let me into heaven. And I'm going to tell you along the way things I want you to do for me. And if you don't do them, I probably wasn't doing my best. But if I do my best, you'll do them. You know, like, like I, I, want, I, want, I want this, I want that, I want you to do this, I want this type of person for me, I want this type of people for my family. You go ahead and do that. And I'm a good person. You ever, you ever hear people making deals with God? Well, God, if you'll do this for me, I'll never, ever, ever, ever again. You know, like, God's like, oh, okay, that sounds good to me, let's do it. Oh, you let me down again. No. Paul's saying, understand the reality of this. You were separated from God totally, completely, nothing you could do. This goes to how, how do you forgive people? God calls us to forgive. Jesus says if we love him, we'll forgive. But how do you do it? Oh, we start thinking about this. I offended God. Not just like stepped on his toes. I, I told him I wanted him dead. I wanted my inheritance now. I want him out of the way. I want to sit on the throne. I want to make the rules. Don't you mess with me, God. I'm in charge. Get out of here. You can serve me. I'm not serving you. It's how I lived for the first half of my life. And then I become aware of that, and I become aware of how God is just and holy. And that's not like, oh, sorry, God. It's the penalty has to be paid. And the wages of sin are what? Death. I deserve death. Someone took death in my place. He took the punishment I was due, took death in my place, and gave me life. That's a massive amount of forgiveness that was, that was given to me. So when I look at someone, not at all speaking to your situation, Bob, here. But when I look at someone that, that offends me a little bit by comparison, it becomes a little bit easier to forgive them, though not completely easy. Because I've got to continue to grow. I've got to continue to trust in God. I've got to continue to abide more fully. And the more fully I abide, the more I enjoy my freedom. And part of that freedom is to be able to forgive other people and experience the joy that comes through, comes through that for me, the glory it brings to God, and see how that works into the life of the person who's forgiven. Do you see that? So as a Christian, you're saved by grace through faith and not by works. 
But as a true Christian, you need to stand firm. You will stand firm. For some of us, it takes a lot longer. You know, it could take 50, 60 years before you really start standing firm well. But you've you got to stand firm so that you will begin to desire to keep the law. We obey Jesus not out of obligation, but out of gratitude. Well, what happens if you don't have that gratitude to want to obey him? Well, you've got to back up again and take a revisit to what the gospel is. Because there is a chance that you know some intellectual facts, but they've never really struck home. But if there's just a little bit of you that really wants to obey him, but you say, but God, it's really, really, really hard. You know, I want to love people, but they're just so unlovable. I want to forgive people, but they really just need to be destroyed. I really want to, to, to share my faith and tell people of your offer, but quite frankly, there are a lot of people I wouldn't mind if they went to hell, but I know that's not the way it should be. Can you help me? Now you're on the right track. You see? Now you're showing that you want to. You're recognizing that you can't do it on your own. It's going to take something beyond yourself. And to be able to do it well, you've got to get out of the crib and begin to walk like an adult, to live like an adult, to live in light of the freedom that we have in Christ. Do you see that? Now, it is possible as a Christian to go through your entire life in this world and never enjoy the freedom you have in Christ. Salvation is an exclusive work of God, right? Sanctification is a work of God as well, but you play a role in it. And some of us play it a little bit more slowly than others. We, we, you will mature as a believer. How fast you mature is kind of dependent upon the, the work that you put into it, the obedience you show. Do you, do you see what I'm saying there? It would be nice if it was just time-based, wouldn't it? You just kind of coast. Well, physical maturity is time-based. Emotional or spiritual maturity isn't time-based. The emotional side, we all know lots of people that have got some years behind them, and they just, you know, they should be in a crib. This is, this is what Paul is saying to the Galatians, and it's what he, he's saying to us as well. Says, Look, guys, the first four chapters, you got the gospel. There's one gospel. You're saved by grace through faith and not by works. There's nothing you can do to be right with God on your own, but it's all been done for you. That's a wonderful truth. Now, begin to walk in light of this truth. You're no longer a kid in the crib. Through Christ, you're an adult son with, with full access to the coffers of God. Live like grown-ups, guys, is what he's saying. Put away childish things and live like grown-ups. And you know what? You know what you always want to you always want to say when you, your kids say to you, Oh, I can't wait till I'm older. Oh, I wish JJ says, I can't wait till I'm a grown-up and I can make my own rules. And I'm like, Oh, dude, you have no idea. Don't you don't you ever have those moments you just want to be eight again? You know, when when your parents pay the bills, you need new shoes, you just go to the store and they give you new shoes and you don't have to worry about things, something in the house breaks, you go to your friend's house, you come back the next day, it's all fixed. Like life was easy, right? It's hard being a grown up. But I don't really want to be eight again. I like being a grown-up. I, I like the, the privileges that come with being a grown-up. I like the responsibility that comes with being a grown-up. I, I like the thing, you know, when, when you're eight, you can't get a, a lovely wife. You, you can't have the joy of having your own kids. You, you can't go out into the world and, and act like an adult because you're a little kid. Well, Paul's saying, guys, act like what you are. Act like sons of God. Act like grown-ups and enjoy the fullness of it, the freedom of it. But you got to do. And while you're out there doing it, don't abuse the freedom that you have. Because we do give an account for how we live our lives. There, there are two judgments. There, there's the big one where the goats and the sheep 
gets separated. So Christian, you don't have to worry about that one. You're right. Then you're going to have to sit down. Your final job review. As a believer, it's a little scary to think about this now, but you want to know beforehand. You're going to have a sit down with Jesus. And you are going to, with him, go through your entire life. And I don't like that. You know, there, there are parts I kind of want to... I don't know what that will exactly be like. I think we'll have some disappointment. I know we'll have some disappointment. He's not going to condemn us. He's not going to be, you've earned 17 spanks. No. But we'll understand at that point more fully, there was no reason to, to disobey. There was no reason to climb in the crib. And we wish we didn't get in the crib. You're forgiven for it. But we have the opportunity from this day forward to, to have a wonderful, joyful time as adult sons with our Lord Jesus Christ as we go through that. You know, part of the video stream will be climbing in the crib, sucking our thumb, and just put our heads down. But there will be other times when we climb out of the crib, when we stay out of the crib a little longer, when we walk about like adults and we go up to other believers in the cribs and say, hey, come on out here. For freedom, Christ has set you free. You don't need to lay in the crib. We'll see areas where we abuse our freedom, and then we'll rein it back in. The goal, as we mature, understand, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Do you see that? My car got stolen. I never got it back. Our joy got stolen by us. You can get it back. What might it look like in this world to be a Christian person, to be a Christian community who was joy-filled, who was living in obedience to God, who was being a light in the community, who people looked at us and said, you know what? You actually are incredibly different from me. Why? What makes you different? And then we can say, oh, it has nothing to do with me. It's all by grace through faith. In fact, I have a great story to tell you. And it starts with the fall in the Garden of Eden. I won't tell it to you today. We'll unpack it. But I have a couple challenges for you. Think about these things this week. Make sure you understand the freedom you have in Christ. Think about in what ways you're trying to creep back into the crib of legalism. Think about how you can better stand firm. Second thing is, where are there areas in your life in which you're abusing your freedom in Christ? And what will you do to change that? The invitation is given to us by God. Live abundantly. You have eternal life. Now enjoy it abundantly. Or climb back in the crib. You're still a child. You can disappoint your father, but he's still your father. And the more you, more you understand that, he's always going to be your daddy. He's always going to love you. And the Holy Spirit begins to work powerfully within you. You start climbing out of that crib and living like adult sons. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for all of us, that you would help us to stand firm, that you would help us to understand who we truly are in Christ, that you would help us go out into this seemingly scary world, knowing that you are with us, that you will never leave us nor forsake us, that you are in control of all things, so we might look as people, not as people who have power over us, but people created by you for your glory. For those who love you, I pray we would be an encouragement to them. For those who don't yet know you, who don't love you, I pray that we would be used by you 
to open their eyes to the truth. I pray that you would give us opportunities to share the gospel with them. I pray that you would use our lives as a a light before them through which you shine. And I pray that you would give us great wisdom in how to interact with them. Because, Lord, that can be confusing. But I pray all who would see us would see something a bit different. That we would stink. That we would be a pleasing aroma to those being saved and a hideous stench to those who are not. That people would look at our lives and know that we are yours. That we are part of your family. That we are sons of yours. And Lord Jesus, I pray that we would obey you. I pray that we would keep your commandments because we understand that you love us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would work powerfully in us. I pray that you would convict us of areas where we are hindering you. I pray that you would convict us of idols that we have in our lives and empower us to remove them. And I pray that we would be so all consumed with you that we could not help but to walk in obedience to you. And that little by little, more and more, we would enjoy the fullness of life in Christ, the freedom of life in Christ, and live like what we truly are, children of the Most High God who can never lose their faith and who will spend but a short time in this world as we prepare to go into an eternity of perfection. What must that be like, Lord Jesus? I thank you that you made a way so that we will find out. You are our hope. You are our certainty. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.